folks, do you love movies? The good ones, even the bad ones everyone told you not to like. It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies, so much so that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bringing you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts celebrating the 20th anniversary of cinematic masterpiece Josie and the Pussycats, to comfy sweatshirts made for the brave members of the Movies by Yourself Club. They even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings you tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. And as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with code SUPERSKYTALKERS, all caps, no spaces, at checkout. If the spirit moves you, find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. Hello there. Welcome to the Sky Talkers Summer Series 2021, Knowing Kenobi, a three-part analysis and deep dive exploring the many names, identities, and tragedies of the Jedi Master, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome finally to the Sky Talkers Summer Series 2021 Knowing Kenobi. Yay. We're here. <laughs> it's summer. It's 2021. This is our fourth, fifth <laughs> summer series. Well, I can't fourth. keep track. If you're new, let's give an overview about why we do the summer series and what it's all about. I think for Caitlin and I, we started doing it when we wanted to chronicle our rewatch of the Machete Order, the Skytalkers Machete Order, in our first year of podcasting. And ever since then, it's become sort of a tradition where we focus on one singular topic for a couple of episodes in the summer. And it gives us this opportunity to like overly research <laughs> a certain topic and spread it out over a couple of episodes when usually we just do a you know a two hour long three part episode. This one will be three full episodes each three parts. So it's gonna be exciting. Can't wait. And we are so excited to be talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I'm super pumped. This is our fourth year doing it. Our past summer series uh 2017 was when we did the first sky talkers machete order where we went through each of the films the next year we did our by george series which was all about george lucas and kind of a deep dive into him and his work and basically his biography and everything next year we did the yoda series which was a three-part deep dive into the character of yoda which and it was so much fun, actually. I love the Yoda series so much. Same. And then last year, we did uh, a deep dive into the animation department for our summer series. So it was three parts going all the way back to the 70s, the first time that Star Wars kind of explored animation coming all the way to the present. And now this year, we're doing a deep dive on Obi-Wan Kenobi, which just feels so fitting knowing that we have the Kenobi show coming up. And it felt like good synergy for the show, for Sky Talkers and also for the show Kenobi. And Obi-Wan is a character that Charlotte and I both really love, but also haven't done a ton of 
like deep work on, if that makes sense. Like we were talking about this before we started recording and Kenobi is that character that's like, yes, I like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I've always liked him. What is it about him? Like, let me actually spend time diving deep into, you know, where he came from, how he's developed across different films and TV shows and and books. And um, what is it about him that is compelling as a character? And that's what we're hoping to explore in this series. So I'm excited. I kind of think it will be similar to the Yoda series in the sense that we're kind of going through similar types of research and discussion. But Obi-Wan is, I don't know, I think of Obi-Wan, I feel like my opinion of him has, or my perspective of him has changed so much in the past couple years of just such a tragic figure that it's kind of overwhelming when you start getting into who he really is. So I'm I'm really excited for this series, and I hope you guys are too. Yeah, I think it's interesting you compare it to the Yoda series because I feel like that started with the impetus of Caitlin being like, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Yoda, but I can't deny that Yoda is a huge figure in Star Wars. And like, let's break down why and how and why he's so big, you know, yeah. and that ended up with us really loving Yoda <laughs> and our opinion fully changing on him. And it was a really interesting like story arc for us. I think. <laughs> our own and, character development. And I don't think we're I just want to clarify that we're not starting from the same place here with Obi-Wan. Yeah. Like we love Obi-Wan. <laughs> it's just someone that we haven't fully explored. And there's a lot of different angles that we could approach this from. And that's why we're doing the series in this way. And Caitlin, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about the structure in which this series will take we're super excited for, yeah, the structure of this series. Usually our summer series are kind of very straightforward, I think, in how we break down the topics. Like with the animation series, we went, uh, you know, chronologically from 1977 to 2019 or 2020 at the time. And it felt like that made the most sense for that topic. And we did the same chronological with By George. And then with Yoda, we did it a little bit differently, but it was kind of based around like him in the film films and then we did and like his origins and development and then we did a deep dive into Yoda uh, within a specific arc within Clone Wars. So we wanted to try something different for looking at Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, we actually spent a lot of time thinking about how we were going to break down this series this summer, but we eventually decided to kind of model each episode after a different archetype uh, to talk about Kenobi. And we drew our inspiration from tarot cards, actually. And so you'll see that this episode is called The King of Swords, which felt very apt when we're talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I don't want to spoil what the other two parts are. Uh, the other two episodes. But yeah, this series, kind of the structure of it was inspired by tarot cards. And we're kind of using them as a very broad guide in a starting point on how to talk about Obi-Wan. Because when you look at some of the descriptions and narratives about tarot cards and about the specific ones that we picked out for Obi-Wan, they go really well with the character of Obi-Wan, we thought. And so we think that it was a really good way to kind of structure this series. And I hope you guys are excited about it because it felt kind of different for us. I know we do a lot of themed episodes, so it kind of felt like taking it to the next level, like the theme of a tarot card and how could it be a starting point to talk about a character like Obi-Wan? So this first episode is called The King of Swords, and we'll kind of dive into a little bit more about that later on. 
Something really cool is that we actually got our friend Kara DJ, who is the author and artist behind the fanzine Into a Larger World. She's been on Sky Talkers before. She's a good friend. And we commissioned her to create art for each episode. And we'll be revealing that artwork as it goes. But she made a she made one piece for us that is the official series artwork and then each episode has their own artwork as well and if you're on like a certain podcast player that should be the artwork that is displayed there as well we're really really excited because Kara actually is someone who has studied tarot so when we came to her with these topic ideas she got really creative because she comes from a place of knowledge about that so it was really cool (laughs) and we love the artwork Kara is so talented so we're so lucky that she agreed to help us out here yeah, it was really good synergy. She, When she messaged us back, she was like, yeah, I, I read tarot for a couple years and, and still does, I think. So it was just – it was perfect synergy. And I can't pick a favorite yet of the pieces she's done. There are two. Like the King of Swords and then one of the other episodes are the contenders right now for me for my favorite piece that she did. I love them all. But uh, King of Swords – uh, King of Swords was the last one that she finished, actually. And when she sent it to Charlotte and I, we were both like, Whoa. It was <laughs> we overwhelmingly were, cool. <laughs> we were so obsessed with it. Um, but there's another one coming a little later, uh, I think episode three, that I, I really love too. And I have a hard time picking, which is my favorite. But yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying the artwork too. This was new for us. Uh, and Kara did such a great job. And if you haven't checked out her fanzine, Into a Larger World, 10 for 10 recommend. It's one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars uh, memorabilia, um, ephemera that I have in my Star Wars collection. So definitely check her out. Her work is incredible. So why don't we dive into it, Caitlin, with the first episode in Knowing Kenobi. So in part one, we're going to be talking about the King of Swords. And in part two, we're going to be talking about the origins and development. And in part three, we're going to be talking about our defining moments for Obi-Wan. So without further ado, let's get started. The Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Okay, welcome to part one where we're going – this is going to be the same for every episode, but we're going to kind of talk a little bit more in depth about uh, the specific card that we pulled for inspiration for Obi-Wan, and this week's is the King of Swords. And, you know, the disclaimer, we are not – Uh, experts in this at all. This is just, uh, like we said, a starting point for inspiration and uh, like a guide kind of to start talking about this character. Um, But we are not experts in tarot or in all... Tarot has so many layers and symbols that are put into it, and it's more than we could ever cover in kind of the first yeah. part for each of these episodes. So yeah. uh, this is very high level about the the, tar- the specific tarot cards, and in this case, the King of Swords. So if you are interested in some of the resources that we use to learn more about tarot cards, uh, those will be on our website, skytalkers.com. We'll have um, a page, a post all about the different resources that we use for this series. So definitely check that out if you're interested in kind of learning a little bit more. But yeah, so this week is all about Obi-Wan as the King of Swords, which the King of Swords felt like such, like even when you hear it, the name of it, the King of Swords, it just sounds so regal. Like that's kind of the first thing that I think of when I hear that name. And 
it felt like it fit Obi-Wan so well, even just from the title of it without even kind of diving into the meaning. It just felt like a really natural descriptor to kind of give to the character of Obi-Wan. But before we get started with that, I did just want to mention, Charlotte actually sent this to me a couple weeks ago, but the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art actually put on an event in October 2019 that was titled The Art of the Card, Tarot and Loteria. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but uh, basically they put on event all about the narrative art that and the symbology that is found within tarot and loteria, which is uh, like a card game that's very similar, like has some similar symbols and narratives to tarot overall, which I just thought was really cool. Um, and again, good synergy, the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, uh, talking about the importance <laughs> of tarot and reading tarot. And they had a whole event about it. And uh, one of the curators said, her name is Erin Curtis, and she said this about the event and about tarot in general. She said, quote, over the years, people have used the cards imagery to create narrative in the course of divination and gameplay. And that's the Lotteria, that's the gameplay. Curtis said, adding the decks have transcended their original use in gameplay to become powerful cultural symbols. Tarot, through its incorporation into mystic and occult practices, and Lotteria, through its identification with Mexican and Latinx culture. Anyway, I just thought it was uh, really cool that uh, the Lucas Museum has already kind of has put on an event that is similar to uh, a little bit of what we're talking about here throughout our Obi-Wan series. I think that we're approaching these cards like through an archetype, as we've talked about, but the concept of examining such beautiful artwork, like some of these cards are just so gorgeous and how mm -hmm. they tell a story and how you can use that story to enrich your own life and things like that. I think that's exactly what we're always trying to get at here in, at Sky Talkers and when we watch Star Wars. So it felt, you're right, it did feel a little, when I found it, I was like, George Lucas appreciates this type of narrative art. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the museum isn't even open yet. And this is from 2019. So I just thought it was a little perfect. So we wanted to mention it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seemed like a fun night, what they did. I know. I'm so jealous. Right? I was like this pre-COVID wonder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the King of Swords and why we chose this to start our series. When Caitlin and I were deciding where to start with this series, it seemed like the King of Swords was the best place to start because of the meanings that come with this card. So the King of Swords represents structure, routine, intelligent, rational, logical, power, authority, strength, manners, conversation, discerning, detached, cool, honesty, integrity, ethics, morals, clinical, methodical, self-discipline, head over heart, use your head, military, law enforcement, legal matters, judge, and father. And so much of that, I feel like we're like, yes, check, check, check. That <laughs> really does align with Obi-Wan Kenobi. This first episode in particular is when we're kind of doing the very broad strokes of Obi-Wan. And I think a lot of these words in this uh, kind of these descriptions for the King of Swords card are kind of a starting point for Obi-Wan too. Like I think if you 
know very little about the character, then these could be some of the words that you kind of automatically point to when you're thinking about who Obi-Wan is, especially in comparison to, you know, like the, you know, Anakin um, and how they're very different. Whenever I, my favorite word in here though, is honestly the inclusion of manners. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's so perfect. And what it makes me think of for Obi-Wan is do you remember in the Clone Wars movie uh, in the very beginning when he's having tea with yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> whoever the opponent is in that movie? I can't remember. But he's it's like this very proper tea. And uh, anyway, just that just reminds me of with manners, I think, of that scene. <laughs> yeah, I think of that scene, too. It, just the, the title that Obi-Wan has during the Clone Wars as the negotiator instead of, you know, Anakin, which is like the hero with no fear, he rushes into things really quickly. He's aggressive, you know, all he's messy. Obi-Wan is the exact opposite of that and mm-hmm. is working through things through manners. I mean, I think that they Star Wars really plays on this perhaps stereotypical idea of Obi-Wan being like a British guy who likes tea. And I think a lot of that kind of falls under this King of Swords like routine, rational, logical you know, methodical manners, like you mentioned, all of that really does come to mind when you think about Obi-Wan. Yeah. And I think too, that head over heart descriptor will be referencing a lot as we kind of dive uh, more into kind of analyzing his character further. Uh, One of the other uh, pieces from our research that talked about uh, what it means when you get the King of Swords in a reading, and it suggests that Quote, you should remain objective in your current situation. You must establish truth by sticking to the facts. The King of Swords and his intellectual power implies that you will need to use your intellect to make your point known and attain your goals. Besides your experience and education, you should be sharp and observant to see deeply into problems that come your way. And I think that, I think, I think part of this is true for Obi-Wan. This yeah. that last little bit of to see deeply into your problems that come your way. I don't necessarily think if I think that Obi-Wan is good at that piece of it, at least not when it comes to his relationship with Anakin. We can get into that later, but <laughs> I think that that's probably an area where if Obi-Wan had kind of been more – if he had been more in touch with his emotions or had been a little bit heart overhead, maybe some situations would have turned out differently. But, uh, yeah, I think for the most part about, you know, sticking sticking to facts, using your intellect to make uh, your point known and attain your goals, that I feel like Obi-Wan really tries to live that in every situation that he's in. Yeah. And on the flip side, I feel like we've talked about this before in our episodes about twin sons. We talked about moral objectivism and how Obi-Wan kind of clings to that and this whole concept of from a certain point of view. So when I read this and it was you should remain objective in your current situation, I was like, that is from a certain point of view. You know, I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Obi-Wan is always in kind of establishing truth by sticking to the facts. And Obi-Wan is always looking to establish truth, I think. And he attempts to stick to the facts. But in some ways, I feel like he creates his own code of ethics, which goes back to the King of Swords, especially when he's in exile, I think, on Tatooine. I think that he... uh, This is sort of like my um, interpretation of him. And obviously this could possibly change with the TV show that's coming out next year. But I would think that he sort of convinces himself that it's all his fault, that he did everything wrong. And those are the facts that he sticks to in order to keep himself in exile and protect 
Anakin's son, you know, and then thinking that Luke is also the chosen one. That is also his own set of facts. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And he, in some ways, I feel like he will all, he, during the time of the prequels, he fell back on the Jedi Code as justification in a lot of ways for how he uh, went about his relationships for better and for worse. Yeah, and I think this gets to the next point in the reading of the King of Swords card. This quote says, The King of Swords meeting also shows that you need to be stern in your role while ensuring that you have clarity of mind at all times. When judging a situation, you need to consider all the possible consequences to make the appropriate judgment. You will need to leave your emotions out of the judgment so as to maintain rational thinking at all times. The King of Swords meaning suggests that you should take time to reason with others and be candid with the observations that you have made. And from this, I'm like, that's Obi-Wan to a T, because I think that he always tries to live by the Jedi Code, and he is stern in his role, ensuring that he has clarity of mind at all times. I think that's, not, that's a really clear way, I think, to describe Obi-Wan, is that he he is super clear in his objectives. Sometimes those objectives obviously are um, clouded based off of the dark side and the things that are happening in the prequels, but I don't think any of us would argue that Obi-Wan doesn't take all the possible consequences into account before he acts like that's part of his status as the negotiator is to try to figure out a different way to kind of see everything from the point of view of the other person to continue to maybe perhaps not <laughs> fight in uh in the way that it, perhaps Anakin would um and to kind of slowly walk things through it i think that perhaps like the most devastating part is when uh in revenge of the sith when Obi-Wan is like, I can't bear to look when there's the hollow of Anakin mm -hmm. killing younglings. And he's like, I, I can't watch anymore. And I think that for him, that's like an overwhelming realization of the lack of clarity in his mind. I think he has he had a clear idea of Anakin, his best friend, his his Padawan learner, his like he kind of thinks of himself as a father, a brother, all these kind of relationship identifiers that we can add to Obi-Wan. And for that moment, it was like very unclear for Obi-Wan about like what the next objective would be that wasn't killing Anakin. And that was just something that he was not, you know, interested in, despite the fact that that's what Yoda asked him to do. And I think, I, again, I just don't think any of us would argue that Obi-Wan is not clear of mind or it doesn't attempt to be that at all times. I think Obi-Wan, in a lot of ways, is really sticking to what we think of as like the Jedi ideal, the like ultimate samurai, I think. I think it, it's so interesting to think about Obi-Wan as kind of the ideal Jedi or the like the guy in the Jedi Order who yeah. tries so hard to have all of the qualities and make the choices the way that the Jedi Code says he should when he turns out to be one of the most tragic characters, I think, in Star Wars because he is someone who, when you're looking at him on paper, he made all of the right choices and he did what he was supposed to for the cause at the end of the day. Um, and I think we'll we'll get into a lot of that, but like you brought up Revenge of the Sith and uh, we're, we're probably going to be living in Revenge of the Sith for a while, I'm sure, <laughs> throughout this series. But I think that like when you watch Obi-Wan kind of not so much, I don't mean like on the periphery of the story because he's very much a big part of the story. But when you kind of look at the story from his perspective rather than like Anakin's, you see just like you see so much more of that conflict in him that he is like so actively pushing through, especially like 
for me, when when you were talking, I was thinking a lot about the scene where he tells Anakin to go and spy on the Chancellor and that that is so hard for him because he knows he knows how much the Chancellor means to Anakin and that that is a that's a bad request. Like that is not like not in good faith, really. But he's choosing to try and maintain the status quo with the council and with Anakin and all in the hopes that these steps are finally going to bring an end to the war. But if he had if he had had time, if he had taken a couple moments to not even a couple moments, but like reflection and meditation from that other uh, description about the card to see deeply into the problems that come your way, maybe he would have you know, finally recognized or verbalized uh, the fears that he felt about Anakin um, as far as Anakin's relationship to Palpatine and to Padme, all of it. But uh, I think sometimes like that emotional side is hard for Obi-Wan to tap into because it like it opens up a whole other can of worms in some ways. Yeah. Let's circle back a little bit to the concept of the King of Swords, because I think on the surface, the King of Swords sounds like someone who's just a master swordsman, the top of the top, the king of it all, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I think Obi-Wan checks the the box of being a really good swordsman. You know, <laughs> he's, he's a really good mentor. He, like we said, can embody it's in some at some level the perfect jedi why do you think he falls under the king of swords like what is it about this title that works for you i think this title works because really for a lot of the reasons that you already said because he is at surface level he's the ideal jedi and he is shown time and time again to put the Jedi first. And I think, like, if I can say that the swords, for our purposes, are symbolic of the Jedi, yeah, he is the king of swords in that sense that he – like Obi-Wan Obi-Wan is so interesting because he's he's bookended by very uh, different characters like Qui-Gon Jinn as his master was very different from him Anakin as his Padawan was very different and then Anakin as his friend is different and then we have him bookended by Anakin and Luke on either side of of his like life really and all these he's He's pretty consistent throughout all of it. But I think once we get into the later half of his life, he starts to take more introspection into who he is. This is what I imagine, right? Because there's a lot of this we haven't seen yet. Uh, But I imagine that he's spent a lot more time in reflection about who he is, for better and for worse, and his role in what happened uh, with Anakin. And I'm sure there's a lot of like dark places that he found himself in because of all of that. Uh, But he ultimately, like even at the end of his life, he's still the king of swords over Anakin in the sense that he sacrificed himself. And I think like there's something very heroic about just the title, the king of swords. And I think that Obi-Wan's heroism changes over the course of his life. Um, and we kind of get to see a lot of different shades of that. So I think the title works really well. It's not one that I would ascribe, honestly, to any other character, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, I wouldn't give it to Anakin, like if I'm looking just in the the saga films. I wouldn't give it to Anakin. I wouldn't give it to – I wouldn't give it to Rey. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. give it to Luke. Uh, it really does feel like it's a card meant for, for Obi-Wan. 
I agree. I also wanted to add to your point about like his journey beginning with 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 Qui Gon. You know, in Claudia Gray's book, The Mas- uh, Master and Apprentice, it's alluded to that Obi Wan actually started as someone who was a little uh, wild. Is probably not the right word, but definitely less structured than we know Obi Wan yeah. in the prequels. And I think for us, that was a surprise. And yeah. to think about how Obi Wan started as like sort of a rambunctious, rambunctious, rebellious teen, and then kind of grew into had this arc of like becoming to where we know and think of him as the king of swords, I think is really interesting. And I'm really glad that that's part of canon now. I think that I just want to mention that because Claudia Gray is actually such a big Obi-Wan fan and has written Obi-Wan fan fiction before. And she's clearly someone who's thought a lot about that. You know, I think it was the right choice. It adds another layer to how we think about Obi-Wan progressing throughout the prequels and then through the original trilogy as well. Okay, let's talk about Obi-Wan's origins in the story. Let's go. I sense a trap. Next move, spring the trap. Okay, so welcome to part two. We're going to be talking about the origins and development of the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And let me tell you, you I found this research so interesting and I'm so excited to get into it. I think Caitlin knows I've been talking about it for a couple days. Okay. Okay, so when Star Wars was being written in the early 70s, it went through several drafts that were being pitched to 20th Century Fox. And those drafts are very different from the Star Wars that we know today and the 1977 A New Hope version. And in that draft, the first rough draft... There was not an Obi-Wan type character. There was someone who sort of can be, you know, you could be like, oh, is that the Obi-Wan person? But really, when you get down to it, that person probably became more of a Han Solo or a Luke. And the characters just changed so much. So for the purposes of our discussion, I want to start with the second and third drafts <laughs> of uh, of Star Wars, because that's when George kind of figured out the archetypes and the characters that we know today and yeah so and I mentioned that because even in like the early Ralph McQuarrie drawings there's no Obi-Wan Kenobi that character just didn't come to be until pretty late in the process and I find that really interesting just as like a fact you know because Mm -hmm. I think that we consider Obi-Wan and he is a really crucial point for Luke's journey our main character our protagonist in A New Hope so much so that I think the name Ben Kenobi is a household name, even though Alec Guinness's character honestly like didn't have that much to work with in A New Hope, you know? So I think that that really speaks to the testament of how important this character was uh, to the story, to the myth, to the fairy tale that George Lucas was attempting to tell. So between the second and the third drafts, this is when we get, quote, an unnamed older Jedi appears for the first time. This elderly man, quite literally the wizard on the side of the road, whom the hero meets on his journey. In exchange for his teachings, the old man requests payment in the form of food, which recalls Kurosawa's seven samurai who are paid with rice by farmers to protect their village. In an outline, Lucas refers to the old man's mystic powers as being those of Don Juan, a reference to the teaching of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge by Carlos Castaneda, which was first published in 1969 with sequels in 1971 and 72, followed by the Tales of Power in 1975. Castaneda's fictional Don Juan Mattis is like a shaman with the ability to shapeshift who teaches the mastery of awareness to the point where one may keep it beyond death. His mystical influence seems to have been a key in transforming transforming Lucas's concept of the Jedi from samurai warrior into more of a mystical warrior. 
Okay, I have to stop here. So that's from J.W. Rinsler's Making of Star Wars, the the Holy Grail, <laughs> the Bible, <laughs> as you know, I have the, I, again, I just want to like plug this because I have the um, digital versions on my phone. It's the easiest thing ever to pull up. Highly recommend it. They're much less expensive than the physical ones, which I do also have, but the digital ones are really easy to go through. I feel like no one has talked about this. <laughs> okay. Um, so I found this and I also found it in Paul Duncan's Star Wars Archives book. And I think that so often we talk about Joseph Campbell and the influence of Joseph Campbell on George Lucas and all of that is true. But anthropologist Carlos Castaneda, this whole idea of the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge, which started off as quote unquote nonfiction and then later by scholars was deemed fiction. This doesn't matter for our purposes. I think that what was put down in these books clearly influenced George Lucas so much. And it's so surprising. You read some of these quotes from the teaching of Don Juan and you are blown away by the similarities. <laughs> right, Caitlin? Oh, yeah. Charlotte started because I, I studied anthropology in my undergrad and she was like, did you ever study Carlos Castaneda? And I was like, no. Weren't you researching <laughs> about Obi-Wan? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was like blown away. Okay. Can I just read some of the quotes from this book? Because uh, yeah. they're pertinent to our discussion about Obi-Wan because this was the, the crux of George Lucas deciding to have this type of character in the story. And in a lot of ways, like I think that obviously he was in influenced by Kurosawa. We know that. And also um, Joseph Campbell. But to me, I was shocked by this. Okay. So here's some of the quotes from Don Juan. Okay. The twilight is the crack between the worlds. It is the door to the unknown. Immediately, I think of the world between worlds and Twilight of the Apprentice, and both those things are together. Oh, my God. Okay, but the damning one from Don Juan, and this is not Don Juan, the Lord Byron poem. It's different, and it's it's just fully different. There's a lot of Don Juans floating around the literature world. I just want to put that <laughs> out there. Anyway, okay, so here's the quote that literally blew my mind. We are luminous beings. We are perceivers. We are in awareness. We are not objects. We have no solidity. We are boundless. Are you kidding me? George I, literally I, lifted luminous beings are we from Don Juan. I, yeah. When you <laughs> me, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> and it's, it's so on the nose that I'm like, how have we never really talked about this? I just... It's kind of crazy, honestly, but yeah, I mean, that that is the force. You could easily, you could take that quote verbatim and slot it into something Obi-Wan says in A New Hope or Yoda says later on in Empire. Like, it's it's incredible. I know. And the th I'm glad that you mentioned you could slot it in for something Yoda says too, because in a lot of ways, Yoda's introduction into Empire Strikes Back filled the void that Obi-Wan was supposed to fill <laughs> um, in Empire, but George decided to kill off Obi-Wan. So a similar type of character archetype was created for Yoda. And Yoda had to be different than Obi-Wan, which is why he is different than Obi-Wan. But they occupy very similar archetypes. And that's why I thought it was interesting to bring this up. And just to further go on this, basically this concept of perceiving energy, quote, directly as it flows through the universe, aka the force, that that speech that Obi-Wan gives Luke in um, in his hut in A New Hope about the what we always refer to when we talk about the force, you know, it binds the galaxy together, it's an energy, all these things, they all directly go back 
to Carlos Castaneda, which is so interesting to me. Okay. Here's a further quote. The idea that the act of living generates a force field, generates energy. That energy surrounds you. When you die, that energy goes with all the other energy. And there is a giant ball of energy in the universe that has a good side and a bad side to it. You're a part of that force because you actually generate power that makes the force live. When you live, you have a piece of that power. When you die, you become part of that major force. You never really die. You just continue as part of the force field, which has its own mind. It is God, whatever. George said that. So I don't know. I just feel like all of this was um, George clearly read that was influenced by that and really um, put that together in Star Wars. And that was sort of the crux of how to approach Ben Kenobi. So by the third draft of Star Wars, Ben Kenobi has a name. Quote, the old man also acquires a name, General Ben Kenobi, who becomes the wizened old man slash Jedi that occupies the role of mentor, originally filled by General Skywalker in the rough and first draft. Like I mentioned, things fully changed around. He trains Luke in the ways of the Force, becoming an important foil to the student's voyage of self-discovery. Perhaps due to Lucas's appreciation of Campbell's analysis of mythology, Luke is more of a loner. He's stripped of his brothers and cousins, and now his father is a dead Jedi. So... End quote. <laughs> I know. There's Luke went through a lot in these, <laughs> these these rough jobs from like not existing to existing to not existing again to losing his twin to gaining a different twin to losing a lover to being a girl. Like all these things. <laughs> There's a lot of changes that happen. And I I think it's it's great to read all this. It gets a little confusing and Rinsler does a really good job of um breaking it all down. But for the purposes of our discussion, the third draft is where Ben Kenobi springs into awareness. And I think it's interesting <laughs> because what happens is, like Rinsler mentions, Luke becomes more of a loner and then therefore he needs a guide. He needs a spiritual guide. So Lucas leans on the shaman figure in Don Juan, the samurai figure from Kurosawa, the general mythology <laughs> that Campbell is so interested in. And I, all these influences, it's just interesting to me that I just have never, I mean, I've, I've read that. I just have never really looked that deeply into Carlos Castaneda before to understand that this fictional book clearly was a really big influence on George Lucas. Yeah, I think we're we're always kind of focusing on the Campbell influence, but there's a lot more that went into it. And I think that is that's also kind of the point of Campbell, too, at least in yeah. The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is that these archetypes are present in a lot of different places around the world and they, they take on different names and 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 kind of origins, but they're all very similar archetypes and they fulfill similar roles within the hero's journey. And yeah, I think, you know, it feels like once George decided that this was going to be a quote unquote kind of by the books hero's journey, it's like, all right, now I need the mentor, the the wizard that's going to help the main character, Luke, go through his journey and I whenever you kind of read stuff from this period of time in the 70s like and and around a new hope the the wizened old man I feel like is kind of how they are always talking about (laughs) Obi-Wan there's kind of no in between it's it's just the wizened old man or the wizard it's like that's who he is Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's interesting that those are like we're kind of talking especially in this episode about like uh, very broad terms to describe Obi-Wan in back in that time 
it really was kind of these two descriptors that they were really kind of giving to him was wise and old man or wizard. And in a lot of ways, you really can kind of distill, you can still distill Obi-Wan down to those two words, which is kind of cool. Totally. And I was going to say, how lucky are we that we have, we started here with the Alec Guinness version of Obi-Wan. And now we have this backstory of Obi-Wan Kenobi that is so rich, is so great. Ewan McGregor gave a amazing performance but you're right that we started from this um kind of basic concept and you're right that like i think it's super cool that we can trace that concept almost back to every single action that happens in the prequels as well yeah so in the story synopsis in 1975 something again george lucas was submitting to 20th century fox here's a quote from you know this was like basically uh like the shooting story synopsis (laughs) so before they can get to shooting um george had to give almost a not exactly final but close to final story synopsis to the uh the executives so here it is where that mentions obi-wan quote on his way to the spaceport he passes a quote poor old man he picks him up and the old man talks about his adventures as a jedi luke is quote in awe and wants to become his apprentice the old man agrees and will train him for quote food when they stop for water, the old man gives Luke a lesson about the, quote, force of others. Old man can do magic, read minds, talk and talk to things like Don Juan. Here we go again with the mention of Don Juan, guys. It's everywhere. <laughs> okay. So we're tracing the Don Juan influence and the shaman type concept that was in- introduced by Castaneda and uh, Kurosawa, too. Um, so even as the costume designs go, there's even a concept of... Uh, Ben Kenobi having like a sleeveless tunic that's very different from how we see Obi-Wan now but the sleeveless tunic definitely does recall the garb of a samurai from one of Kurosawa's films especially Hidden Fortress which I think a lot of people Caitlin and I have watched that and you can clearly see that uh the the similarities between A New Hope and Hidden Fortress from the two characters that are like C-3PO and R2-D2 to the old samurai who is living alone, um, away from others, hiding out. And that is very much the Obi-Wan Kenobi character. So when we get to the part of finally casting for Obi-Wan, this is where it gets interesting, okay? I mean, I, I find the other <laughs> stuff interesting, but I, we're, we're getting going, you know, in Obi-Wan becoming a real fully-fledged character. So they're casting the part, and I find this fascinating. Quote, There was talk at one point about having the princess and Ben Kenobi be Japanese, which led George into thinking that Han Solo might be black. I think it would have been so cool if Obi-Wan was Japanese because it would really make that link of samurai. And uh, from here, we see that, quote, this was actually when I was looking for Ben Kenobi, Lucas says, I was going to use Toshiro Mifune. We even made a preliminary inquiry. If I gotten Mifune, I would have also used a Japanese princess, and then I would have probably cast a black Han Solo. At the same time, I was invested in Alec Guinness. So after this, George had a friend slip Alec the script into some when Alec was in Hollywood and he was filming something. There was like this little clandestine slip of putting it in his office in a trailer. (laughs) So I thought this was interesting. So, quote, I was in Hollywood making a movie. This is Alec Guinness. And on my second to last day, a script arrived on my dressing room table. I saw it was going to be directed by George Lucas, and George Lucas I knew about because of American Graffiti, which I admired very much. So I was immediately excited. 
But when I opened the script, I saw it was science fiction. And I said, oh, Lord, I've never done a science fiction film. I've seen one or two of them and I've enjoyed them. But I always thought they were sort of cardboard from the actor's point of view. Because of, but because of Lucas, I started reading it and found myself invo- involved. I wanted to turn every page to see what happened next. I wanted to know how each little is- incident was concluded. I had a tu- it had a touch of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It was a rather simple outline of a good man who had some magical powers. It was an adventure story about the passing of knowledge and the sword from one generation to the next. So I bring this up because I think there's a major misconception in the Star Wars fandom about Alec Guinness hating Star Wars. I think we've all heard that, right? You've heard Mm -hmm. that, right, Caitlin? And I'm not saying it's not true because I think he had a lot of frustrations during the filming. But initially, Alec was on board. He was here for it. He was like, this is cool. Um, And it wasn't until George approached him to kill off Ben Kenobi because that was a mid-shooting decision, as Star Wars usually is with George. He's always writing. He's always changing stuff even to this day, you know, <laughs> um, that he came up to Alec and said that he was considering killing him off. And Alec was sad. So here and we go. Alex was Alec was sad. Alec was sad. Yeah, he was sad. And it's 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 kind of sad, okay? It is sad. It is sad. It's just the way you phrase that. And Alec yeah. was sad. <laughs> Quote, in the fourth draft, that's when George started playing with the idea of killing Obi-Wan. Quote, I was struggling with the problem that I had this climactic scene and had no climax about two thirds of the way through the film. I had another problem in the fact that there was no real threat in the Death Star. The villains were like 10 pins. They just got knocked over. As I originally wrote it, Ben Kenobi and Vader would have a sword fight and Ben hits a switch and the door slams closed and they all run away. And then Vader is left standing there with egg on his face. They run into the Death Star take o- ta- and take over everything and run back. It totally diminished any impact the Death Star had. Then Rinsler goes on and says, as a later entry into the story, Kenobi hadn't always fit in. And it's true. There's as, as an aside. Like I mentioned, Obi-Wan wasn't part of the original rough draft of Star Wars. So he was really a much later character. And from all the descriptions, it really does seem like he was just a bum on the side of the road, you know, that helped Luke sort of intermittently mentioned the Jedi and then moved on. Right. So George yeah. hadn't really figured out a way, a place for him yet. OK, so back to Rinsler. Even the first appearance of the old man in the synopsis, where he was essentially a vehicle for the film's spirituality, had obliged Lucas to search for plot points that would involve him. Rewrites were so common during shooting. Quote, I took Alec aside and told him I was going to kill him off halfway through the picture, Lucas recalls. It is quite a shock to an actor when you say, I know you have a big part and you're going to going to the end and to be a hero and everything. And all of a sudden I have decided to kill you. Alec was very, a very, very brilliant man, but he was also an actor and very emotional, very human. He said, you mean I get killed, but I don't have a death scene? But he kept it under control, under control for the meantime. Okay, so that was, on t- that was when they were filming in Tunisia, right? Yeah. So they come back to London, and Alec is not happy about Obi-Wan's death. This is George. We went to a restaurant and sat down. He was terribly upset. He was ready to walk off the picture. He said, I'm not doing this. He didn't like the idea of being a ghost. That's the part he really didn't like, the idea of giving yourself up willingly to join the force. So I had to convince him to come back on the picture. It was a very long lunch during which I had to explain why I was doing it and what I was doing and how. I explained that in the last half of the movie, he didn't have anything to do. It wasn't dramatic to have him standing around, and I wanted his character to have an impact. Once I explained it, it was much better for the movie. He 
looked at it and said, you're right, this is much better, and started to think about what he was going to have to do and how it would have been embarrassing to simply be standing around without much purpose. The idea of having Ben Kenobi go on afterwards is a part as a part of the force was a thematic idea in the earliest scripts. It was really a Castaneda tales of power thing. The Castaneda stuff never stops. Okay? <laughs> Once you look down into it, it just never stops. Okay, and then I think this is the funniest detail ever. Afterwards, Guinness spoke to Mark Hamill. He said Alec thought it would be a far more effective idea if he sacrificed himself. So, <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Full circle. So Alec was convinced he sacrificed himself. And that's one of the reasons why he came back later as a ghost in the original trilogy. And um, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And I just think this developmental idea, this concept of Obi-Wan and how to make him, make his character have the biggest impact and landing on sacrifice is perfect. And that's exactly where we think of Obi-Wan as like, you know, perhaps one of his biggest moments is when he does sacrifice himself for Luke, Leia, Han, Chewbacca, and the droids to go on to the Millennium Falcon and leave from the Death Star. And then he transforms into the Force, which again goes back into the concept of Castaneda, which is the Force as an energy that you transform into afterwards. And all these things, all these concepts, I just, I would love to be a fly on the wall at that lunch where George was explaining this. I just feel like I could listen to that forever. And the the idea of Obi-Wan starting from a character that was just pretty small and like Rinsler mentioned, a vehicle for talking about the film spirituality. And that's, I think, pretty true still. And again, one of the reasons why I think Ben Kenobi has a really big impact in pop culture from the very early on 1977 Star Wars movie, because he explains what everyone talks about, you know, the force and how it comes up later. Uh, I still think that um, the choices that George made um, were perfect for his character. Yeah, the development of Obi-Wan is such, like, it's it really is a journey, especially when you kind of pull it out and kind of lay it all on the table together, like, for Obi-Wan specifically. And I think it was such a good choice on George's part of Obi-Wan was this vehicle for spirituality, like you said in the beginning. And even from those earlier iterations of him kind of just being this old man on the side of the road that Luke happens upon like yeah there's value in a character like that but once George develops Obi-Wan into uh yes still being kind of our first contact with the idea of the force but now he's a character who is intrinsically tied to Luke and who knew Luke's father personally and and you know what he tells Luke in A New Hope is that Vader betrayed and murdered your father like it instantly becomes so much more interesting because we know that Luke lives with his aunt and uncle and that they've told him about crazy old Ben but all this time Ben has had this you know, direct link to Luke's father, to his family, his his birth family. And I just think that you just make that one little switch and suddenly like this whole world of emotional connections like pops up <laughs> of when you take him from just being someone that Luke kind of runs into into someone that is directly tied to Luke's past. And it kind of it begins to spin the web of the complications of all of these characters right in the ways that like really good stories are kind of messy like that with all of the mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships 
But, and, and even the decision, like you kind of went through the development, like to his ultimate uh, death in the story, but it does make more sense. And yeah, I would have loved to have seen Obi, uh, George Lucas kind of pointing out, you know, in the original script of like, look, Alec, you're just standing here. What are you doing? <laughs> it makes more sense for you to be killed earlier and, you know, to be this great sacrifice because, like, you're just standing here. Don't you see? Like, I don't have anything written for you. You're just standing here. <laughs> also, I just want to mention that George doesn't kill characters just for, like, yeah. shock value. And yeah. I think that we know that now just as from his, like, breath of work, right? But yeah, And, like, all the things he said. But I think that we know that this was a genuine, really solid story choice for Obi-Wan's character. And it eventually convinced Alec Guinness the same. And I also want to add that I know those diary entries from Tunisia definitely circulate on the internet about how he hated the sci-fi stuff. The And he did. Like, he said that originally, that he wasn't a huge fan of it. But he was on board with George Lucas a lot of the ways. So I don't know. I find it all kind of interesting, this whole, like, myth about Alec Guinness, um, which maybe it's I, – I think it's more complicated than – just he hated working on Star Wars. He wouldn't have come back if it wasn't so. I think a lot of people who worked on Star Wars 2 in, in Tunisia, it was it was very much like, what are we doing? It's like hellish. Absolutely hellish. Yeah, absolutely. And the the working environment, like literally, is is very harsh and difficult. And when it's like it I mean, everyone talks about it. It's like you just don't see the vision that George had in his head in a new hope. And it's hard to, like, put the pieces together. And I can imagine being Alec Guinness, who had a very, uh, like, a, a great career, right? He's before. literally a sir. He's Sir Alec Guinness. Yeah, he's, like, he's, he's literally a sir. And Lawrence like, of Arabia. Like, he's he's it, you know? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, come down to Tunisia. <laughs> and, you know, do this whole thing. Talk about the forest. Walk around with some stormtroopers. Um it would have been very disarming to be like, what have I signed up for? It's like, I know that the bones of it were there in that script that I read initially, but now that I'm here, what did I do? (laughs) (laughs) So I I think that that kind of experience was, I don't want to say universal for everyone working on A New Hope, but especially the crew that was down in uh, filming the Tatooine scenes those were really hard. Mark talks about that. A lot of people talk about that. And mm-hmm. uh, then to come back and, I don't know, be in a more controlled setting and then to be told, like, your character, like, I'm completely cutting you out. Like George said, like, to know that you're going to the end of the film and going to be a hero and now suddenly all of that's gone. That's a lot to take in, especially if uh, you just came off a really hard uh, month or however long it was of really harsh working environments and conditions. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that I would that, like the shock value in that, um, the shock in that as as an actor. And um, yeah, I, I totally understand where Alec was coming from. And I also would like to have been a fly on the wall in that <laughs> particular <laughs> lunch conversation. <laughs> There's a really funny anecdote in Rinsler about how um, some of the crew members were shocked when Alec in like on the first day in his Obi-Wan costume and his robe, he sat on the ground in the desert and got the robe all dirty. And everyone around him was like, I can't believe you did that. But like no one wanted to say anything because it was Sir Alec Guinness. Yeah. And then someone later says that 
it must have George must have told him that he could do that and perhaps should do that because the environment should have been lived in and gritty. And yeah. I thought that was interesting. So I thought that like aided to the discussion of the commitment of Alec to the role of Obi-Wan. And to your point earlier about the history that this character uh, sort of has and when he's introduced as such as a friend of Luke's father. Alec really plays it in a way that you really do think he's thinking about the Clone Wars. And it's so well acted and well done. Of course, it has an impact. And to your earlier point about him being a, f- a vehicle for spirituality, I think I bristle a little bit always at the word of like vehicle or vessel, vessel. or something. Yeah, something like that. Like I find it degrading and uh, simple sometimes. But I think that Obi-Wan being the vehicle for spirituality of the film is why we can call him the King of Swords and why we have this sort of ideal notion about him. And of course, like that ideal can be challenged. And I think in the series, we will challenge it. Like, is Obi-Wan a liar? Did Obi-Wan, like the self-preservation that went that was involved with Obi-Wan's character? I'm excited to kind of explore that and talk that through a little bit as a guide, as a mentor. But I do think that in A New Hope, he is presented as the ideal, the older swordsman, the last Jedi, right? Like, I think that was um, part of the introduction of his character is this like, there's this crazy old wizard. And I think Owen actually says he's a crazy old wizard, you know, who is the last Jedi, and what does that mean? And that concept of The Last Jedi is something that I think we've been exploring in the Skywalker saga and in Star Wars for so long. What does it mean to be last? And how do you carry that forward? And so much of that is wrapped up in Obi-Wan's character from the get-go. And that's why we have that sort of theme of mentorship that runs throughout the entire saga. Yeah, and I think, too, that when we're thinking about kind of coming all back to the King of Swords, like you were discussing, that it really is that introduction to Obi-Wan that I think even more so kind of gives you that King of Swords feeling because, and you're right, like the the word vehicle or vessel to describe like a person is um, not always the best, (laughs) but he, he is the touchstone, I think, for a lot of these concepts because he introduces all of it, you know, in the in the very beginning. Uh, if you know, if you are a, if you watch A New Hope first, that's your first Star Wars movie. Of course, that's gonna vary. But I think even depending on what order you watch it in, when you get to that moment in A New Hope, it feels it feels regal, and that's because of Alec and his his whole uh, how he presents Obi Wan, but. I think we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves um, because we're going to talk about some of that stuff some more in part three. <laughs> yeah. But was there anything else in part two that we wanted to make sure we included? No, I mean, I couldn't really find that much about the development of Obi-Wan in the prequels. And I, I just think it's important to start from the Alec Guinness character because that really does define the archetype that we work from with Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is kind of hard to find. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to read that quote, Caitlin, that you found that we were talking about before we oh, were yeah. recording. Yeah. From you so, in. Yeah. Okay. So like Charlotte said, it was really hard to find kind of concrete stuff uh, about the development of Obi-Wan in the second trilogy. And it was even harder. I can't tell you how long I spent trying to find specific quotes from Ewan McGregor talking about 
the character of Obi-Wan. And it was really hard right now because everything that might have come up originally is kind of buried underneath just like a ton of articles about the <laughs> Kenobi show that aren't saying anything substantial aside from you and <laughs> being like, yeah, it's great to put on the robes again. You know, like I'm like, that's I can't put that in an episode. That's not helpful. <laughs> but there was this one interview that came up and I actually found it on like an old archive from the force.net where they had kind of compiled uh, all of these interviews from Ewan in the nineties. And there was one that I, I kind of think sums up Obi-Wan Kenobi the best. Like we've spent what, like an hour now talking about how to define Obi-Wan. And I think Hugh McGregor summed it up in like a sentence, <laughs> but this interview is from 1998 and it's uh, from a British magazine called loaded. And I tried the website, the link didn't work anymore. But so Ewan is talking about the character of Obi-Wan and he says, I'm playing a hero, a Jedi Knight who has a sense of what's going to happen. Nothing is too much of a surprise for a Jedi. And then the interviewer says, so you never lose, lose your keys? And Ewan laughs and he says, not ever. Obi-Wan Kenobi always knows where his keys are. And I think that that is such... <laughs> That's like it's that's perfect. That's the <laughs> description of Obi Wan Kenobi. He always knows where his keys are. <laughs> and I think, like, just to take that one step further, I think there's always this debate about like how much did Obi Wan know about Anakin and Padme? How much did Obi Wan care about Anakin's struggles? And the thing is, I think he did always know about those kind of things, you know. And yeah, I think he always knows where his keys are. Whether yeah. he wants to talk about where his keys are is a different story. Exactly. But he knows where they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, I I love I laughed out loud when I read that quote. Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> always knows where his keys are. I think it's it's the perfect way to sum up the past hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we ready to move into part three? Yes, let's do it. Remember, the force will be with you always. Okay, welcome to part three, where we're talking about defining moments for Obi-Wan. And Charlotte and I talked a lot about what the last, what part three should be in this episode, and we kind of struggled with what to make it. And uh, we ended up deciding that maybe it would be a good idea for each of us to talk about what we think are the defining moments for Obi-Wan Kenobi and to kind of talk about why we think they're defining moments for the character. And we thought this would be a good idea in episode one because this is kind of big picture of not only the series, where Obi-Wan came from as a character in the 70s and like George's development of him. But now it's kind of big picture of what we think about the character too and kind of the most important moments of him uh, throughout the entire lifespan of the character thus far. Because in parts two and three or in episodes two and three, we'll really kind of be talking more in depth about you know, analyzing the actual story and character choices that he makes uh, throughout the TV shows and films and books and stuff like that. So we kind of thought it would be good to start with like our favorite moments, which are defining moments that we think about for Obi-Wan. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first because we were just talking about this moment. And I think for me, I think the defining moment for Obi-Wan as a character is that a New Hope speech? Because, and you were talking about this in the last part, because of just how much can be read into it. The way that Alec Guinness plays it, it's just, it is perfect. And like, it just, 
there's so many ways you can interpret it. And you know those fan video cuts where they like intersperse clips from the Clone Wars into the speech and everything. Not it's even just, just the fan videos, Caitlin. Yeah, the not, actual sorry, Revenge the actual of the Sith <laughs> trailer. <laughs> I just forget that. I'm like, fan videos. Um, <laughs> the fact that they can do that, it just – it speaks to how kind of mysterious that whole – uh, speech is and like we were talking about in the last section of like once you switch Obi-Wan into a character that knows Luke's father this for lack of a better word this ghost that Luke has kind of been chasing and, and idolizing in a lot of ways in his head for his entire life and now here's someone who finally knew him it's it's like oh my god like that that's such a cool connection for the first film for a new hope right and I just think that that whole speech it it does everything you want a good expository speech to do. Like one, it's not too long. It's got a lot of mystery in it, but it gives you something to grab onto, not only in terms of the character for Luke, but also in terms of the force and like introducing that concept. And the fact that like that speech is kind of all you have to grab onto uh, for the beginning of like what the force is, who Luke is, who his father was, the fact that there's this whole kind of history uh, that's interwoven into that speech, not only about the Clone Wars, but also about like Vader and Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship to that character. I just think it's an incredible speech. And the fact that it it's from the very first film but there's so much kind of wrapped into it that has been unwoven, unraveled throughout the past 45 years. Like that's that's literally the Skywalker saga is unraveled from that speech. It's so important. And I do think it's a defining moment, not only for the saga, but for Obi-Wan as a character, because the way that it is played you can see both the regret, you can see the certain point of view of it all in the way that uh, Alec Guinness talks about Vader, talks about the Clone Wars, that almost like nostalgia twinkle that he has in his eye, but it's just there for a moment because he knows like all the tragedy that followed it. I don't know. I just, I think it's, it's so important in Star Wars, that scene. And it's important for Obi-Wan too. And I think that, when we dive further into the actual series of Kenobi, uh, we'll kind of move into how we get that Alec Guinness version of Obi-Wan and his perceptions of the Force and of the past, too. That's what I hope from the Kenobi series anyway. But yeah, I do think this is, I think this is, it's like easy, but I think it's it's a defining moment for Obi-Wan. I, I think that you're right and that it's easy, but it definitely is a defining moment, you know? And for me, I now look upon this scene with new eyes. And this is just one of those amazing things about Star Wars. The more pieces of the story we get, the more we look upon this as what is he thinking? How does this kind of compare to other moments? And we think about how now we're about to have this Obi-Wan Kenobi series that presumably Obi-Wan is on Tatooine protecting Luke from afar as a watchful eye. And you have to wonder how crafted this story is, right? For Luke to finally hear. Luke is 19. He's been doing this for 19 years. And he's never said this before to him so, so much that we can presume, right? So the way he's holding back, but also giving to make Luke take that, you know, call to adventure. And how do we uh, perceive that? Because I think there's ways to perceive that as like, wow, he's holding too much back. He's not saying anything about Vader. He's speaking highly of Anakin, but 
in a way that is just shielding a lot of the truth. And that goes back to obviously Obi-Wan saying things are a certain point of view. But I'm just intrigued to see how we'll we'll continue to view this scene as the saga evolves. Well, we talked about uh, in the last section, right, the quote of Obi-Wan Kenobi always knows where his car keys are. If he wants to talk about where the car keys are, that's a different story. And I think you can kind of even read that into this uh, speech, too, of, you know, everything he is saying about Anakin, but also everything he's not saying about Anakin, too. Like, those are two separate sets of keys. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's funny because if you consider this as something that he's like dying to tell Luke and it has formulating these words in his head about like what he's going to say to get Luke to agree to go with him to Alderaan and things like that. And later he's like, I've been meaning to give you this lightsaber as if he hasn't been waiting for this moment for 90 years. <laughs> you know, and like looking upon that and being like, oh yeah, the sparkly, this weapon that is of a, from a bygone age and is really special this heirloom i've been dying to give you but i didn't know the right time and the right time is now so obi-wan always knows where his keys are he always knows what he's gonna do but <laughs> how does he approach it <laughs> i don't know if i think that obi-wan has been like planning this like speech in his head i think that hmm, it kind of interesting yeah for as much as we talk about obi-wan as like a planner and, a, and like someone who is always on on top of things right like he's got his ish together um i do think that like the time in on tatooine has kind of changed him and i think he's always been like you're right definitely with the lightsaber like he's had that thing locked and loaded ready to go (laughs) (laughs) it reminds me of anakin keeping ahsoka's lightsabers oh my god in like a beautiful gift box and it's It's kind of the same thing it's kind of the same thing it is kind of the same thing but as far as like the the whole uh speech about like which set of keys is he giving luke to his past like oh yeah your father actually fought in the clone wars and here's what the force is and all of that like those sets of keys i think that he's like he's always had them on the tape like he's always known where they are right like the table but i don't think he like planned necessarily to give them to luke at that moment i think that i think that it's it was I feel like Obi-Wan at that time in his life has a more abstract relationship to the Force that I don't necessarily think he always had or tapped into during the Clone Wars. Um, And of course, we can talk about the cosmic and living force of it all. But I think that throughout his exile on Tatooine, whether or not that turns out to be a complete and total exile, right? (laughs) Um, I think that... He's kind of more led by the moment. And I honestly think that seeing that message come from Leia, it was like, all right, it's time to grab those keys. Like, this is the moment I need to give them to him because it is, it's Leia. And like all of these pieces coming together, it's Leia. Luke is here. Like he, he more or less found me, was seeking me out. It's R2-D2. Like it all comes together. And like now is the time to go and grab those keys. That is true. And I would say that add to your point about living in the moment, that goes back to what Qui-Gon says is always like living in the present and never looking too far into the future and things like that. I think I think that's a good reading of that scene. Personally, I like to consider that Obi-Wan has been <laughs> planning this forever, but I think that you're probably right that he's like, no, all the places are in motion. This is perfect. Like the the game, let the game begin. You know what I mean? I do love the idea that Obi-Wan has had that lightsaber and has like 
practice this uh, more elegant weapon of a civilized age speech like in the mirror <laughs> like how would Me i do. describe the clone wars <laughs> obi-wan's talking to i know, himself I know in like the i love that I love that. I love that concept of Obi Wan just being alone, being like, "I cannot wait to give this to Luke as a present." <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I think we know from like that one comic. Who knows if that's canon anymore? But um, about how Owen was pushing Obi Wan out of Luke's life from the yeah. very beginning and calling him crazy and things like that. And I think in those moments, he must have thought, you know, maybe this will never work. Maybe this isn't right. But I think that the start of Luke's own adventure um, changes that for him. So I, that that's what makes me think more of your reading of like living in the moment and like all these pieces all coming together. It does make sense. Okay, so my defining moment is the high ground farewell speech to Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. In just to use the key metaphor that we've just kind of been running with in this part. <laughs> okay, so much of Obi Wan's emotions live under the surface, and what makes this part so tragic and I think we think of Obi-Wan as a tragic figure right and so I think that all of these kind of pieces come together in this particular scene to make the most defining Obi-Wan Kenobi moment for me that made me um that made my heart break for him and Anakin too I think both of those pieces of like two brothers a father-son figure however you want to look at it because I think you can look at it both ways this to me is the most tragic way but okay back to the key metaphor whether he wants to talk about those keys that's a different story right I think that here Obi-Wan is talking about that you know you are my brother Anakin I loved you the fact that he said I loved you I am just so thankful that George Lucas went there in the script and said that. I just think that imagine if we didn't get that, I don't think it would be as impactful. Also, one has to consider the fact that Obi-Wan didn't watch Anakin die. He didn't watch him. He watched him burn, but he didn't watch him die. And he 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 told Yoda that he cannot kill Anakin and he didn't kill Anakin, right? I think he left him to die, but he didn't kill him. I'm so curious to see what the Obi-Wan Kenobi show does with this moment because I think for so long us fans have been wondering, like, did he know Anakin was dead? Does he know Vader is Anakin? Like, he does because he knows that name because he saw it in the security hologram, hologram recordings. Does he, did he really think Anakin was dead? And how do we play with that in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series? But say he didn't, I think it's even an even more powerful thing of, yeah, I'm not going to, I can't watch him die. I can leave him here, but I can't watch him die. And all these, the fact that he was able to kind of verbalize that in Anakin's presumably last moments and all Anakin says back to him is I hate you is just the kind of like creme de la creme of why Obi-Wan is such a tragic figure is all the people that he gets close to leave him one way or another. And here's the moment where actually Obi-Wan cuts Anakin off himself, you know? And I think that obviously you can argue that Anakin does that himself too, but this was like a defining moment where Obi-Wan had the quote unquote high ground and changed Anakin's life for never. And therefore after this, Obi-Wan's life was also changed forever too. It was a a a, a shift in the galaxy from this moment forward. Yeah, I think that I think you're right in the sense that like Obi-Wan finally like taps into like these emotions or they not that he taps into them but they overwhelm him and it's weird because like in this key metaphor i would say that 
this these moments, these last moments with with Anakin are are when Obi Wan loses the keys. Like this is when everything comes crashing down around him. And I would say that this That's is. True. I don't want to say like unhinged, but it's it's like like there's nothing left to loot. Like I don't know. I I do think it's like he's lost the keys because everything was under control, but it was all to make another metaphor of it, like balancing plates, and then they all like one by one they kind of crash around yeah. him. Whether it's like the Jedi themselves, it's Anakin that he sees on the hollows, it's Yoda asking him to go and kill Anakin, it's finally confronting. Uh, well, it's meeting Padme, finding, like, coming to terms with what happened with Padme. Like, I think he picked up those keys finally. Like, <laughs> he kind of knew they were over there, but he never touched them or looked at them purposefully <laughs> with Padme and Anakin. But going to her, that's finally picking up those keys. And then coming to Mustafar, though, it's it's all it's all gone. And I think that – I think you're right to point out that, like, that moment is when uh, they kind of irrevocably change each other in that moment. And they've always kind of had that relationship. But of course, these last moments on uh, Mustafar are like to the nth degree. And uh, we'll probably be referencing it a couple times throughout this, but bum ba -dum, the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Um, I think this quote from the Revenge of the Sith novelization actually speaks perfectly to what you were just saying, Charlotte. Um, and it's from this moment uh, in the Mustafar battle. And it says, uh, this is not Sith against Jedi. This is not light against dark or good against evil. It had nothing to do with duty or philosophy, religion or morals. It was Anakin against Obi-Wan personally, just the two of them and the damage that they had done to each other. And I think that I remember being so struck by that last part of the damage they had done to each other because it it's almost like I'm like, well, they they did this to themselves. Like these were mm -hmm. all and specifically looking at it from honestly, like Anakin's point of view for most of the time when I read this book. Right. Um, and it's like those are the like these are all the choices that Anakin made himself and like people reacting around him. But when you phrase it like this, like the damage that they had done to each other, thinking about this moment with um, the speech that Obi-Wan gives to Anakin, Anakin retaliating back with I hate you, um, like these wounds cut so deep in each of them. And it is the damage that they've done to each other. Um, it's like all of the other things that they stood for pretended to stand for turning to the light or the dark side like all of that was gone in this moment like it is just Anakin against Obi-Wan and everything that they've been through together and this like this turning point in kind of the biggest way for them um and yeah I think that I, yeah I'm just kind of obsessed with that phrasing of the damage they had done to each other because mm -hmm. it's it's so tragic when you kind of give it yeah. that perspective and you kind of pull Obi-Wan more into the story I think because like we said a lot of Revenge of the Sith is from Anakin's perspective and it's it's things happening to Anakin and the choices that he's making but uh, throughout this whole battle especially in the Revenge of the Sith novelization it it pulls Obi-Wan and his tragedy into it a lot more I think in a really good way yeah I think that what's so good about that lightsaber battle and why it's so many fan like such a fan favorite is yes because it's epic and it's choreographed super well it's like a dance but also because it's so personal and yeah. we've all been waiting for this and this like you reading that quote about it's Anakin versus Obi-Wan and 
the damage they had done to each other. What's interesting is that Obi-Wan hurls the insult of you've done this yourself to Anakin. But, you know, Anakin could say the same thing to Obi-Wan. And that's what makes it so interesting. And you can argue whether or not you agree with that or not. But these are two friends who have been through hell together. And you're so right that this quote is just so... It's so rich, and just like anything in the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Oh my god! But it really gets to the heart of it about how the the damage they have done to get done to each other. It's a personal fight. It's has nothing to do with duty or philosophy. And it, it was just them. I mean, you can you can mask it in having to do with philosophy, religion, and morals. But at the same time, it was this you know fifteen or ten to. Mm, it was this 13-year journey that Obi-Wan and Anakin as a duo were on together. And how did how did it come to this point, this lack of communication, this lack of help, this and that goes both ways. Yeah, it absolutely does. If it's okay, can I talk about my runner-up moment for our yeah. defining moments? And cuz it's a small one, okay? But I think that in on the topic of Obi-Wan and Anakin, it's interesting to bring up, especially with Revenge of the Sith. I think we all know I love Revenge of the Sith. It's like my favorite Star Wars movie. It's the reason I'm a fan. So, obviously, I think a lot about it <laughs> and with Obi-Wan. <laughs> think Obi-Wan is a really great character in Revenge of the Sith. I really want to talk about the moment when after they crash land the invisible hand on Coruscant and you're, you get the sense of impending doom of like we just had this kind of fun crash landing adventure and now what's going to happen and after watching it you know hundreds of times you know what's going to happen it's like this slow dis- slow slash quick spiral into darkness right so I want to talk about how in the beginning of the movie Anakin and Obi-Wan are on the same page they never disagree they are finishing each other's sentences almost literally in some of the uh, deleted scenes this is very clear that they have special codes that they're like all on the same page and all of this is done by George Lucas to show you and build you up about how this is the duo of all duos and they never fail. They know exactly why they're here, why they're in it, and they love saving the galaxy. And it's charming. So this is a small moment. And I think some of you are going to be like, really, this is the moment that you're talking about. But it is. It's true. Okay. So they land. They're they're about to go. Anakin's about to see Padme in the Senate. They've landed for the Senate. And Obi-Wan's like, you have your glorious day with the politicians. I don't want to go. You can talk with the politicians. I'm just going to go back to the council and prepare the briefing for the mission. And Anakin says, but what about Kate and Nimodia? And Obi-Wan goes, the business on Kate and Nimodia doesn't count in in terms of like, that's where Anakin saved Obi-Wan. This is the first instance in Revenge of the Sith where Obi-Wan and Anakin disagree. And from here, it's like we've crossed, we've landed. And I think it's no mistake that this is in the political sphere, right? Where Anakin and Obi-Wan perhaps disagree the most. It's where Anakin is so overly influenced by Palpatine and also his relationship to Padme, things are changing. He's in this environment where things are changing. And right here is like the first instance of disagreeing. And it's small, but it's the beginning of something larger in their relationship as it fractures. They're not part of the war anymore. The war is winding down. The war is ending. And what does that mean for their relationship? Yeah, when I saw you put this moment in our show notes, I was like, oh, very interesting. (laughs) It was like not one that I would have ever pointed to. But I think like your reading of it as kind of the first fracture in the film Revenge of the Sith, 
I think is a really good reading because I, I think, you know, at surface level, it's it's a comedic moment of like, oh, that doesn't count. Like this is this little kind of yeah. funny in joke, inside joke between the two of them. But it is it is like the first fracture, the first crack in their relationship throughout the film, The Revenge of the Sith. And I, I think that I think that's a really cool reading that I've never really considered about that moment before. Yeah, I, it's one I've thought about a lot, actually, because um, it does. Doesn't it feel like when you're watching Revenge of the Sith, something fully changes after they crash and they breathe a sigh, a sigh of relief, and the next shot is a wipe, and you see the Senate building coming, and you just know, you know, everything's about to change, because yeah. they're not above in the galaxy. Even the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, you have the two starfighters who are perfectly in sync, and suddenly they're not in sync when they get back down to Earth or Coruscant. Yeah. You know. Because they don't really spend any time together after this. The they, time they do is fractured fraud, yeah. until yeah, until the goodbye, which is just overall tragic because there's so much that isn't being said on the surface. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is kind of the last one of the last good moments. But the undercurrent, the undertone of that last good moment is substantial. Okay, so my runner up moment is also from Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> and it is the moment when Yoda asks Obi-Wan to go and kill Vader. And I don't know if I think this is necessarily a defining moment for Obi-Wan specifically or more for myself when I look at the character of Obi-Wan. All I know is that this scene hit me like a ton of bricks when we were doing our uh, nesting viewing order a couple months ago when we were in Florida yeah. together and yeah. I was like holy crap this is yeah. the worst thing I've ever seen in my life I am completely heartbroken in this moment and it's it's such like it is a small kind of scene similar to yours um but I think that I think it could be seen as a defining moment for Obi-Wan of of all the keys have been lost, right? <laughs> if we're going to run with this metaphor for a little bit longer. But what he's being asked to do is the unthinkable. And Yoda, it's not up for discussion. Yoda just asks it of him. And I think this like realization that comes over Obi-Wan in that moment of just how lost they really are, that like it's so quickly it's come to this, like the rug pulled out from under him. And this building fear that's been happening through the Jedi for the last couple of years like it's come down to this and not only has it come down to like the Sith are back but Anakin is with him now like it's just it's so heartbreaking and I think that kind of my revisiting of this scene in the past year or so has just in a lot of ways completely uh not reframed my view of Obi-Wan because I, I think I've always kind of viewed him as a tragic character, but it's just, it's really taken it to the nth degree of me to, for me. Like I felt the emotion from that scene uh, so much more uh, the past couple times I've watched it than I ever did, you know, growing up watching Revenge of the Sith, because I think I was always like so ready to get to the fight, right? <laughs> because it's so cool. Um, and that really is emotional too. But this moment is, this, this, in a lot of ways, is even more heartbreaking. I don't know, because, like, Obi-Wan, Yoda knows what he's asking Obi-Wan to do. And, like, how could Yoda ask Obi-Wan to do that? Like, it still makes me so sad. Like, it's how, awful. It, it is. It's like, how could Yoda ask that of Obi-Wan? Um, 
but yeah, I think I think it's it's a defining moment for me personally for the character, and I think in some ways also for Obi Wan himself. Yeah, I think everything changes from that moment. I think once he has this realization, this understanding that he, I think he always, I think he kind of knew that it could possibly be Anakin. I bet he felt it in the Force, but yeah, number like seeing it for himself on the hologram, and then Yoda asking him to do it. You know, even he says it before Yoda even does. Right? <laughs> he says, "Don't ask me to kill Anakin. I can't do it." I was wondering if the way that you said. I can't remember what you said now, but something blanks fear was a Freudian slip in the fact that a hugely rumored title for Revenge of the Sith uh, in 2004 was The Creeping Fear. And I always think that's funny. You said something like, oh. I can't, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think what I meant was like the the fear that the Jedi had of the dark side and like the Sith for the past couple of years, like during yeah, the Yeah, it's a creeping era. fear. Yeah, the, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to mention that because I, I, it's one yeah. of my favorite little fun facts. It was a rumored title. I don't think it was ever that title, but it kind of caught like wildfire on the spoiler boards in 2004. So I think it's funny. That's funny. So we'll name our next uh, series, The Creeping Fear. Yeah, the creeping <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about in this first episode? I don't think so. I mean, I'm so excited to dive further into Obi-Wan. Even just talking about these, uh, some of our favorite moments and the defining moments of Obi-Wan make me so excited to dive further in and explore Kenobi through these archetypes that the lenses in which George Lucas himself even imposed on Obi-Wan as he was writing the character. So I'm really pumped. Yeah, I'm really excited for the next two parts. Uh, I hope you guys are too, and you've enjoyed this first episode. So thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to talk about uh, knowing Kenobi more with us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin and Plusher. And you can also find us on our website, skytalkers.com or our Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok if you're interested. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would really appreciate it if you took a couple minutes to go and do that. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. And uh, our Patreon was actually, they got to know the summer series about a week before everyone else. So if you're interested in kind of some exclusive announcements and content, uh, that's definitely the place to go. Yeah, it totally is. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Bridget, Daniel, Matthew, Thomas, Mike, Lakshana, Ian, Kevin, John, Rachel, Jacqueline, Spencer, Marty, Debo, Matt, Eunice, Jordan, Rebuild, and Miss Art. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Another happy landing. <laughs>